You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thank you for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. The Premier is offering a boost to British Columbians coping with high inflation. The Climate Action Tax Payment and BC Family Benefit are both increasing. And as Richard Zussman reports, there's also good news for renters. It's John Horgan's pitch to British Columbians, an attempt to tackle cost of living that's on the run. This is a fair package that will meet the needs of people in the short term. Changes targeted at low to middle income families. The Climate Action Tax Credit to go up $164 per adult and $41 per child in October. Of $410 for a family of four with a max income of $148,000 a year. About 85% of British Columbians will receive it. And the BC Family Benefit will go up in January, February and March. A single parent with one child will see it go up $58 per month for $175 in benefit. Phased out at $115,000 per year in earnings for a single parent and $117,000 for a family of four. About 75% of families will receive this benefit. Whenever they do finally act on something, it's too little, too timid and too late. The final measure, rent increases will be capped at 2% in 2023. For those paying $2,000 in rent per month, they could save $816 next year. Many families, many young people and those on fixed incomes will also benefit from capping rent increases. The right uh, decision would have been to allow the full increase. Uh, we only had 1.5 last year and, and nothing in the year before. The province is still considering a possible rebate through BC Hydro. What's not being considered is a check for all British Columbians, something they received in Quebec and Saskatchewan. Not all British Columbians are in a position that are, they're struggling, whether it be uh, with groceries, whether it be with rent, whether it be with uh, meeting their other daily costs. And so by targeting these resources, we're helping the people that need it the most. Horgan hoping these measures are enough for BC families to stay ahead in the game, with an opponent inflation seemingly getting stronger. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. And adding to the expenses for millions of families, today's hike in the Bank of Canada key interest rate. It now sits at 3.25% after an increase of 75 basis points, the highest it's been since 2008. Global's Anne Gaviola has the details. Today's move marks the fifth consecutive rate hike from the Bank of Canada since it began lifting rates from rock bottom back in March. While we haven't seen a broad break in inflation, some pressure is easing. If you filled up over the long weekend, you may have noticed some of the lowest gas prices all summer. And the housing market is no longer red hot. But economists point out overall inflation is still at multi-decade highs and the cost of borrowing is climbing too. It's a hard place to be and it's going to continue to be this way until inflation gets back down to a more reasonable level. Households may feel like they're stuck between a rock and a hard place financially as the central bank grapples with inflation. This interest rate hike has an immediate impact on variable rate debt, which was popular among homeowners during the pandemic. Here's how the 75 basis point hike impacts a typical five-year variable rate mortgage on a home priced at $630,000. Monthly payments would increase by $236. For households feeling financially stretched already, it's a lot all at once. It takes up to two years for the effect of interest rates to trickle through the economy. Economist Pedro Antunes says the fact that we're seeing some relief already is promising. 
I think they're probably uh, going to have their fingers crossed, hoping for inflation numbers to come down. And I think if that's the case, that will allow the Bank of Canada to take a little bit of a breather going forward. But other factors, including the war in Ukraine, increases the risk of a recession in Europe as the continent grapples with soaring energy costs and colder weather on the horizon. Financial pain abroad can bring us down too. There are signs that inflation has already started to peak, and some experts are looking at what's going on in the Canadian economy and suggesting that the Bank of Canada may hold steady at its next interest rate announcement on October 26th. The Bank of Canada is tasked with cooling inflation, cooling the economy, and not triggering a potentially damaging recession. Anne Gaviola, Global News, Toronto. Now, it's being described as one of the richest B.C. public sector contract agreements in decades. Government workers announcing details today of a tentative three-year contract. As Amata Gahi reports, after years of increases of 2% or less, union members will now at least be keeping up with inflation. After nine straight days at the bargaining table, capping off more than seven months of on-and-off negotiations, the B.C. General Employees Union has its deal. This has been, quite honestly, one of the toughest and most challenging rounds of negotiation I've ever experienced. From public liquor store employees to forest firefighters and social workers, roughly 33,000 public sector employees in this province now have a better idea of what their future earnings could look like when stacked against inflation. In the first year of the new agreement, these workers would see a 3.24% pay hike, plus an additional 25 cents per hour, followed by two years of raises based on inflation. And over the course of the three-year deal, a worker could see their wage go up as much as 13.5%. Beyond the general wage increase, there is a lot within this collective agreement that is going to put money in our members' pockets. President Stephanie Smith says the union was also able to secure commitments to flexible work arrangements, as well as recognition for employee mental health and occupational health and safety concerns. The province holding back most of its comments until the deal is ratified. We believe it's a fair package that meets the interests of of, uh, taxpayers who uh, access services that meets the needs of workers who provide those services. And uh, we've uh, done our best to ensure that collective bargaining can work. Uh, We'll see what comes back from the membership. The deal comes after what the union calls two weeks of historic job action. That led to picket lines at liquor and cannabis distribution centers, the impact of which was felt by many, especially in the food and service industry. We took a strike vote when the initial offer from the employer was 5.75%. We've more than doubled that. Next, the union will need to take this agreement to its members to see if the details satisfy a workforce that only months ago overwhelmingly voted to strike. In Ladagahi, Global News. All right, Keith Baldry joins us now with more. Obviously, BCGEU with a potential deal in their hands. But what, what's mm-hmm. the broader implication of this deal, the potential impact on the rest of us taxpayers? Yeah, it's going to be the biggest settlement in decades, as you mentioned off the top, Chris. I think you have to go back to 1992 to see a similar deal of this proportion with the BCGU. Already, though, the Hospital Employees Union just today released the details of their contract, exactly the same as the GEU, which suggests this is the template going forward for 184 contracts, almost 400,000 workers. You extrapolate the BCGU contract and the associated costs right across the board for all those contracts. This is how it works out in terms of the high and the low. On the low end of 11.5%, 
5% over the course of three years. It works out to accumulated costs of $8.7 billion over a three-year fiscal plan. The high end of inflation remains high over three years. It's more than $10.6 billion. And those figures are likely low because there is a commitment to hire more staff. But we caught up with uh, Finance Minister Selena Robinson today and asked her, uh, this is a huge number. Can we afford it? She says the government can afford it and it's a fair deal for all involved. Well, it's important to make sure that we are um, that it's a fair deal. It's a fair deal for workers today and three years from now, which uh, which this is, as well as making sure that we you know we maintain our fiscal responsibility to uh, the people of British Columbia. Well, we we have a deal, uh, a tentative deal that uh, finds the balance between both parties. So again, this deal extrapolates right across the public sector. We are talking billions of dollars, but guess what? In the budget here, uh, there's billions of dollars over three years that are unallocated to any specific spending area. So there is money in the budget to fund this type of contract. All right. That's, you, can, you can guess that's likely where it's going to go then. <laughs> Keith, thanks very much for that. All right. Relief all across Saskatchewan tonight. The dramatic end to the manhunt for stabbing suspect Miles Sanderson in just over a minute. An officer seriously injured in the Saanich Bank shooting, finally going home after 71 days in hospital. We'll have more on his condition and release from hospital later. Plus, on edge in Eastgate, the Manning Park community well aware that we are still in wildfire season. We'll get an update in just a moment, but right now, there are breaking developments still coming out of Saskatchewan tonight where residents are breathing a sigh of relief. The manhunt for the suspect in a stabbing rampage that left 10 innocent victims dead and many more injured was tracked down on a highway in central Saskatchewan today. And from there, it took a dramatic turn. And Global's Heather Yorick's West joins us now live with the latest. Heather. Chris, I'm on the side of the highway about 40 minutes north of Saskatoon. We're at 3.30 local time. About three and a half hours ago, RCMP took Miles Sanderson into custody after a dramatic pursuit. And shortly after that, Global News has learned from multiple sources that the suspect, Miles Sanderson, has actually died of injuries that are believed to be self-inflicted. Now, this was a pursuit that began shortly after 2 o'clock local time. A uh, vehicle was um, seen fleeing a nearby community. Uh, an emergency alert went out warning people that Miles had been spotted in a white truck. He was uh, brandishing a knife. Uh, that pursuit lasted about 30 minutes, and then police were able to um, apprehend Miles Sanderson using uh, a pit maneuver in which they rammed the vehicle, causing it to spin out. And that's where uh, he was taken into custody, loaded into an ambulance, and then from there, this uh, we've learned from multiple sources, as I said, uh, Miles Sanderson uh, actually has died. So um, behind me, there's still a uh, heavy police presence. Uh, you can see the, um, the the pickup truck that, that was the stolen vehicle that Miles Sanderson was last in. Police are still investigating. We are expected expecting to hear from police uh, later tonight where there are a lot of questions that still need to be answered. But uh, in the meantime, we're starting to hear reaction from the surrounding communities as well as the James Smith Cree Nation. This has been such a dramatic, tragic week. But again, the manhunt for Miles Sanderson has ended and the suspect has died. Chris? And Heather, hopefully more information coming from RCMP later tonight. Uh, we'll check back in with you if that is uh, what we get. Thanks very much for that report. Again, Heather Yurex-West in Saskatchewan.
Police have now released the names of the 10 people killed in the stabbing rampage. Nine of the people lived at James Smith Cree Nation, and they include six people from the Burns family. 23-year-old Thomas, 28-year-old Gregory, 46-year-old Carol, 48-year-old Bonnie, 61-year-old Lydia, and 66-year-old Earl Burns. And two members of the Head family also died, 49-year-old Lana and 54-year-old Christian. 49-year-old Robert Sanderson was also killed, along with a person from the nearby village of Weldon, 78-year-old Wesley Pedersen. And while many of the families have asked for privacy, one of them is asking for support after losing its matriarch and one of her sons. Global's Kyle Benning explains. The Saskatchewan families have been struggling with the deaths of their loved ones. And while many are choosing not to talk, one family is sharing their love and admiration for their mother, sister and spouse. She's not a victim. She's a hero. Mark Arcand lost his 48-year-old sister Bonnie Burns and 28-year-old nephew Gregory after they were stabbed outside of their home on James Smith Cree Nation. He says Sunday's attack has left extreme trauma on her children, one of whom was injured in the rampage but has since recovered. One of the young boys was hiding behind a, a high chair watching everything unfold. Victims who died range in age between 23 and 78. All but one lived on the reserve. Arkand, who is the elected leader of the Saskatoon Tribal Council, called his sister a mama bear and someone who cared for kids, whether in her role at the local school or as a foster parent. It was a beautiful home. It was filled with love and care. And the children always came first. The family has set up a GoFundMe page with donations going towards counselling services for Bonnie's three children and two foster children. It has set an original goal of $50,000. Meanwhile, families are still waiting for answers they may never receive. Kyle Benning, Global News. Just ahead, the Liberals launch a tunnel attack. We will wait another decade, spend billions of dollars more. The fake ribbon cutting and what go. it says about a delayed transportation mega project. And when help from the government felt more like harassment, Consumer Matters stepped in to help. Crews are on scene to a crash at the Knight Street Bridge, southbound at the north end in the left lane. Big delays in both directions as a result. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. The B.C. Liberals held a grand opening ceremony today for a project that doesn't even exist. As Grace Key reports, the Liberals say their 10-lane bridge to replace the Massey Tunnel would have opened today if the NDP hadn't killed the project. Ladies and gentlemen, the opening of the bridge that should have been. The Liberals had a mock ribbon-cutting ceremony for what would have been the grand opening of the Massey Bridge, if not for the current government cancelling the project. That 10-lane bridge would have been open today. That 10-lane bridge was $900 million below the budgeted $3.5 billion. That 10-lane bridge would have allowed a future that included rapid transit to connect Richmond through the Bridgeport SkyTrain station all the way through to South Surrey. 
The eight-lane immersed tunnel would be $4.15 billion. The 10-lane bridge would take nine years. The tunnel opened by 2030. The bridge also had environmental approval. They are going to be stuck in the environmental process for years because the other problem with the tunnel they want to build is that it will have massive environmental impact on very sensitive sturgeon and salmon and all of the impacts on the Fraser River that dumping eight concrete tubes into the river is going to have. He was going to toll the bridge in the lower mainland. We are in the business of taking tolls off bridges. We believe that the submerged tunnel uh, is a better course of action for the environment, better course of action for cost effectiveness, and it meets the needs of the majority of the municipalities in the region. Falcon says the NDP wasted 100 million taxpayer dollars when cancelling the project, adding if by some miracle the NDP gets the tunnel started, he would not cancel the project if in government because that would be fiscally irresponsible. Grace Key, Global News. A B.C. taxpayer who did the right thing and paid back her pandemic support money had been waiting months to get her income tax refund back from the federal government. The Delta resident tried to get answers, but says she ended up being bounced around between government agencies for months. And that's when she reached out to Consumer Matters for help. Here's Andrew with more. Refund. She says she returned the CERB money on time and wondered why the government wasn't doing the, the same, same when it came to money. Out of frustration, I did tear a few of them up and throw them out. <laughs> Janice DeFreitas is referring to another government letter offering few solutions. For months, she's been trying to get her income tax refund with no success. I know it's not a lot of money, but... I want it. It's mine. Janice's uphill battle started this past March when she filed her income taxes. At the time, she also repaid $2,000 in CERB, pandemic support money, money she used back in the spring of 2020 when the dentist's office where Janice worked temporarily shut down. Now I don't have a job. So when the CERB money came, yeah, I jumped on it. I had bills to pay. After receiving a notice earlier this year to pay the financial assistance back, the Delta taxpayer did so at the end of March. So March 31st, I transferred them $2,000. I'd already done my income tax, so now I'm thinking, well, that's okay because I have a refund coming. Janice was expecting a tax refund of over $600, but it didn't end up in her bank account. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Early April, I go online to look at my income tax and the refund has been given to CERB. Janice contacted the CRA, where she was eventually directed to another government agency, Employment and Social Development Canada, and told... You can expect it in three weeks. This was in April. Janice says the back and forth between government agencies went on for months. Now August, Janice was still without her refund. No one can give you a good explanation as to why I can't get my money back. That's when Consumer Matters stepped in. Come on, Hunter. In just a matter of days, Janice's tax refund of over $600 was deposited into her account. So when I saw it in there, it was one of these. <laughs> there we go. Employment and Social Development Canada attributing the delay to a timing issue around the CRA set-off program. There where an individual's tax refunds may be applied against debts the individual owes to the government. In this situation, there was a timing issue from the time the client paid the debt in full and when the CRA set-off was initiated.
The payment was applied after the CRA set-off, resulting in an overpayment. It's a pretty hot day. Janice just wishes someone could have given her that explanation from the very beginning. You accomplished probably in one day, which I couldn't do in four months, so thank you so much. <laughs> Now, if anyone is in a situation similar to Janice, Employment and Social Development Canada says it is experiencing a high volume of requests at this time and is, quote, working to action these requests in a timely manner. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters.globalnews.ca. Way to go, Ann. Good work. We're going to action more news in a moment. Just ahead, crime fatigue. The fear that we have is that how long can we deal with this in downtown Victoria? Why this Victoria shop owner is considering closing his doors. And as Vancouver's Chinatown struggles with crime and graffiti, are there lessons to be learned in San Francisco, where Chinatown is thriving? A closer look coming up. Traffic is moving pretty well in both directions across the Portman Bridge tonight. Do keep in mind, though, the eastbound exit lanes will be closed overnight for paving from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Centre. Business owners in downtown Victoria are so fed up with crime, some are even considering closing shop altogether. Kylie Stanton shows us why community leaders are pushing for this to be a civic election issue. As you can see, there's a bunch of broken glass here. We've found these rocks inside. Boarded up for the second time in three months. Another thief breaking in, leaving another business at its breaking point. Oh, it just boils your blood. It just, it really pisses you off that this person is very comfortably doing this. At 5.14 Saturday morning, the window breaks and the alarm sounds. Half an hour later, with no police in sight, a man enters the store, making off with hundreds of dollars in merchandise, including a laptop. He was careful, he was watching that whether somebody's coming or not. It was only when an employee pulled up outside, the thief fled, getting away long before officers ever arrived on scene. So I don't know where the downtown is headed. I mean, how bad it's getting, you know, day by day. The numbers don't lie. According to Statistics Canada's Crime Severity Index, which measures the volume and severity of police-reported crime, Victoria's index of 148 sits well above the provincial average of 93. Even Vancouver at 90 falls below. Uh, 9 out of 10 businesses have said it's one of the top three issues that are impacting their business. But it appears they're not alone. No police presence, that's the problem. And These people are in deep distress and there needs to be some sort of solution, a, a healing solution. Okay, so that carries. With a municipal election just around the corner. Yes, I am planning to vote. Wouldn't miss it. There's hope there will be a major shift in the way the incoming mayor and council deal with the problem. It's the behavior we're talking about. And the sort of hands-off approach has just created a situation where these behaviors are becoming normalized. There's one here and one at the other end. It's left Rana contemplating what's next. <coughs> While this break-in wasn't the first, it could be the last. Well, what is our choice? Should I start sleeping in the store, you know, to protect my business, 
but we have to decide on at some point that do we take keep on taking these losses or do we just shut down the business Kylie Stanton Global News Victoria a police officer critically injured in the Saanich bank robbery and shootout in June is the last to leave the hospital after his discharge today The officer, who isn't being identified, suffered the most serious injuries among the Greater Victoria Emergency Response Team members who were shot during the June incident. Police say he'll continue his recovery at home. The injuries were very significant. They were life-threatening when they occurred on June 28th. And he was required multiple surgeries uh, that have been staged and planned carefully by the surgeons to ensure his body had time to heal. His journey will continue for a very long time. Uh, I don't have any idea of when a return to work date will be at this time, but knowing his progress that he has made to date, it's been astounding. A total of six emergency response team members were injured when Matthew and Isaac Octoloni robbed a bank of Montreal. Both suspect or both suspects died in the shootout with police. The Independent Investigations Office has taken over the case and released no further information since. Vancouver's Chinatown is trying to recover from years of neglect, a symbol of the kind of urban decay and crime that's gripped the downtown core. Community leaders feel the solution might be to learn from San Francisco and how the city of love has handled a similar crisis. Kristen Robinson reports. Music, murals, and beat cops on Grant Avenue, all greeting visitors to San Francisco's Chinatown. In the 16 block radius we have here, we have 35,000 people that live here. All right, let's keep walking. Officer William Ma is leading the Vancouver group through the oldest Chinatown in North America. The owner, she looks like she's 50, but she's actually, she just turned 84 uh, today. <laughs> Tane Chan's walk shop has been a fixture here since 1969. I'm so proud of it it's because it retains everything. It retains the culture. It's a living, vibrant community. Chinatown has about 15,000 SRO units, many home to low-income seniors. They feel safe because uh, there's a lot of people. It's not empty. Residents pay no more than 30% of income. Malcolm Young's Chinatown Community Development Center has been fending off real estate speculators since 1977. More than half of the nonprofit's 37 affordable housing buildings are in and around Chinatown. The realization that um, Chinatown needed to be kept affordable um, actually started um, in the civil rights era. When student activists fought against redevelopment to keep Chinatown an immigrant gateway. That social fabric runs deep. Hello. Ah, thank you. Welcome back. Police working with merchants. When we have some problem, we call them, they come immediately. I would say now the Chinatown community has a voice, has a bigger voice than we've had before. 20 or 30 years ago, this place is prostitution, gangs, sewing factory. It's tough to do business. Very tough. But Kevin Chan, whose business just celebrated 60 years of rolling out fortune cookies, says Chinatown persevered. People have to contribute. Each, each, everyone has to contribute and care, care about community. It's, it's all about caring. The local Chinese Chamber of Commerce and the city supporting the history here. 
We're very proud of our Chinatown, but I think there's areas that we need to fix. Like graffiti, which here is sometimes as hard to spot as the Golden Gate Bridge through the fog. The faster you remove it. The key says public works, get rid of it quickly, and the taggers will eventually go somewhere else. Step five, you want to pick the right tool for the job. The city even has a seven-step video on how to paint over graffiti or remove it with solvents. The effort leading to a lantern-lined Grant Avenue, safe enough for all generations to walk at night. When I walk through these streets, that weight of the history and significance of what I'm doing and what, who I'm representing, it bears upon me, and I don't take it lightly, and I don't take it for granted. Kristen Robinson, Global News. It's no secret Canada's health care system is struggling, and a new survey confirms millions of Canadians are having difficulty just accessing the universal health care our nation takes so much pride in. And as Kamal Kuramali reports, B.C. residents are among the most frustrated. Movement, one of the remedies for Eileen Davidson, who has rheumatoid arthritis. It involves fatigue, cognitive dysfunction, and also makes me immunocompromised. But a type of pain she can't control is one that comes with a long wait time to see a specialist. I'm waiting anywhere between three months to two years. It's gotten so bad she moved across the street from a hospital just in case things take a turn for the worse. Now, an Angus Reid Institute poll shows 29% of people surveyed say they've experienced chronic difficulty in accessing health care. 31% say they've faced some challenges. 30% found it either impossible or very difficult to get an appointment with a specialist. 23% said the same about emergency care. And 28% found it impossible or difficult to access surgery. When we look at that group that's really having the most trouble, that's a group that represents 9 million Canadian adults. Americans are more confident than Canadians in getting care fast. 29% said they're very confident compared to only 7% of Canadians. Meanwhile, 6% of Americans said they're not confident at all, while 24% of Canadians said they lacked confidence. BC has some of the highest numbers across the country of people who say they face challenges seeking care. 34% said they have chronic difficulty accessing health care, well above the Canadian average of 29%. You need to look at the redistribution and reallocation of, of what is being given already to the public system because the money is there. It's just that the people who need it the most aren't getting it. I've been tasked by my colleagues to uh, make the case to Ottawa that they need to sit down with us to reimagine health care. But pushing the reset button on the health care system would require time and patience. It's been very frustrating. Something many patients with chronic illnesses don't have. Kamal Karamali, Global News. Up next, a reminder, we're still in wildfire season. Why residents of Eastgate are being told to be ready to go at a moment's notice. And in sports, winning bets, the defensive weapon keeping the BC Lions in the game. The Heather Lake wildfire burning near Manning Park east of Hope is growing tonight with a lot of dry fuel in the area. Fire crews are trying to protect the homes of dozens of residents nearby who are on evacuation alert right now. Global's Taya Fast has more.
It's burning in a heavily fuel-loaded uh, forest, uh, forest that is, uh, there's a high presence of dead and downed, as well as standing dead uh, timber. Um, so fire on this landscape is part of a natural process. The wildfire has triggered an evacuation alert for hundreds of properties in Eastgate. Uh, wildfires, as everybody knows, are, are highly unpredictable. And a uh, shift in the wind can mean everything in terms of what that fire does. So right now the fire is still a considerable distance away, and I don't know that there's an awful lot to worry about, but I think it's important that people are uh, aware and prepared. However, only a few residents currently live in the community. And mostly, mostly recreational. Uh, certainly it would have been very, very different here over the long weekend in terms of population. But a lot of people went home, of course, on Monday and Tuesday. He went on to say that this isn't the first time that the community has gone through something like this. We're well versed in this. We went through a big fire last year that got a heck of a lot closer than, uh, than this one is. The wildfire has also forced an evacuation order in parts of Manning Park. Several trails are closed to allow helicopters to pick up water from Lightning Lakes. And although the resort is not immediately impacted, a list of those trails are available on the Manning Park website. Currently, 37 wildfire personnel, six helicopters, and one piece of heavy machinery have been assigned to this fire. Currently, our strategy is uh, we're watching what it does with different weather inputs. Uh, we're making plans based on different decision points that we're drawing on maps, and uh, we're ready to respond as the fire kind of tells us what it needs us to do. The regional district says anyone who is under an evacuation alert should be ready to go at a moment's notice. TFS, Global News, Eastgate. All right, keeping an eye on the weather up there, of course, that's always helpful. Christy Gordon joins us now with the latest on this sort of ex extended summer weather that we're having, Christy. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's extended summer, Chris, though, that is created still that high to extreme. There's a lot of areas in southern B.C. that are at an extreme fire danger rating, so keep that in mind. We had a little bit of rainfall over Sunday, but that really didn't uh, help things much at all. And today, gusty winds. It's not too bad out here right now, but I tell you, I couldn't put my umbrella up earlier today. It was so windy. Here's a look at some of the waves in Stanley Park, and cancellations and delays in the ferries. If you're traveling that direction, make sure that you're checking that out before you head out because there still could be some delays. Although we are expecting the winds to die down, it's because we're in behind this cold front. The strong northwest flow around the region really pulled in that westerly flow down the Strait of Georgia, pushing right onto the west coast. Uh, so Point Atkinson, Vancouver getting gusts up close to a 60 kilometers an hour today. As I mentioned, we are expecting it to ease off overnight. It has prompted, though, a bit of an improvement in terms of air quality in some areas, not all. Far southern uh, parts of Okanagan today, like a Suyus, we're still in that thick uh, uh, smoke, and we're expecting that to continue on and off throughout the day tomorrow. A surge in heat, though, come the weekend as we continue with this hot, dry weather. The peak of the heat for the south coast on Saturday, and for those of you in the interior, it will be on Sunday, and you could see temperatures in the high 30s. Tomorrow, though, we're just starting that heat. We're still near seasonal in terms of temperature, lots of sunshine, but again, that smoke will come and go, especially in the far southern parts of the Okanagan and in near... Uh, 
uh, hope. Uh, for our region, though, we've got lots of great weather on the way. Come late weekend, Sunday into Monday, that's when I'm expecting a little bit more cloud cover, but there's still some uncertainty around that. So make sure you're tuning back in about the latter part of your weekend. Tonight's Central Windows weather window coming to you from Kalamalka Lake. Oh my goodness, I apologize for that spelling error, but as you well know, it's Kalamalka Lake, everyone. <laughs> you are going to be in trouble. Thank you very much, though. It was a beautiful mm, shot. I know. Uh, not to worry about it. Squire joins us now with a look ahead to sports. Squire? Well, uh, Nathan Rourke wasn't the only Canadian player the Lions expected to star for them this season. Another was uh, defensive lineman Matthew Betts, whom they signed as a free agent. I knew the, the team trusted me. I knew the team wanted me to be here, and I wanted to be part of this team. He leads the BC Lions in sacks. He is one of the better Canadian-made defensive players in the entire CFL. Also coming up, sometimes it seems like California is powered by the sun, but power is its biggest problem right now. We'll have more on that later. All right, a lot of people uh, with good thoughts for a made-in-BC goaltender. I know. I don't like this story, but... Mm -hmm. It's expected because yep. we heard a few weeks ago about his knee injury, but the uh, Montreal Canadiens have placed goaltender Carey Price on the long-term injured reserve list because he is still recovering from a serious knee issue. That means his $10.5 million wage this season won't count against the Montreal Canadiens' salary cap. I'm beginning to wonder if we will ever see the great Carey Price ever play hockey again. It would be nice, but hard to say. If you think giving soon-to-be 30-year-old JT Miller $8 million per year was a gamble. How about $8.35 million to a 20-year-old who's only played two seasons? That's what Ottawa did for Tim Stutzla. He was given an eight-year contract extension. His $8.35 million per year, that'll start next season, is a huge raise off the $925,000 he'll make this year. He had 58 points in 79 games last season. He does have a lot of upside, but a contract this big, this soon, is a serious leap of faith. The BC Lions are certainly not the same team on offense without quarterback Nathan Rourke. We all know that. But they can survive that huge loss if their defense continues to play at a high level. And one of those players who has made BC's defense a nightmare for opposing quarterbacks is defensive lineman Matthew Betts. Also, like Rourke, a Canadian-made star who leads the Lions in sacks this year. Fajardo again, 23 seconds to go. Oh, he is taken down. Matthew Betts. You can see why Matthew Betts was the Lions' number one free agent target in the offseason. Betts leads the Lions in sacks this year with seven in ten games. He was a highly thought of guy coming out of coming out of Laval, and so um, and I, I've always appreciated the way he plays. He's a good he's a good player. He's got talent, but he always plays with a really high motor and high effort, and it pays off for him, especially when you're a D lineman and you're trying to to rush the passer all the time. So uh, you know, good on him. Betts is another Canadian in Lions colors, making a name for himself in the CFL. Originally selected by Edmonton third overall in the 2019 draft, he initially signed a contract with the Chicago Bears. It was one of their final cuts. This after starring at Laval, where Betts made history, becoming the only CIS football player to win four individual awards to go along with two Vanier Cup championships. Your appetite for sacks. How would you describe your hunger to get in the backfield and get it and, and to get a quarterback? <laughs> uh, I love it. I, I think we all do. Um, 
when it comes to you, it's fun. But I mean, when it's a passing down, second medium, second long, obviously you, you go for it. You want to put pressure on the quarterback. Juggernaut. That's what I call him. A juggernaut. Uh, relentless, um, literally pay, plays at a different pace. Um, even if you watch the practice film or anything like that, like I said, he's always running to the ball, running 40 yards downfield, has a different energy and stamina than anybody else on our team. Um, TJ probably get mad at me about that. But even outside of that, that's just the reality. Um, he just plays at a different speed in the sense of he doesn't get tired. He always wants to be out there. I'm proud of his progress. And the progress he's made to become an impact player is impressive. Forget about the fact this is only his third CFL season. Growing up in Montreal, hockey, not football, was his first real sporting love. And yes, naturally, he bleeds the red, white, and blue of the Canadians. Okay, so were you a finesse player when you played hockey, or were you a guy you know, who, who played heavy like a Mario Trombley? I did it all. Uh, heavy like Mario Trombley. I had the hands of Mario Lemieux. I didn't have that good of a shot. I played physical, but skated fast. Um, could block some shots. Wasn't a big power play guy, though, but I mean, I, I think... Uh, I did as good as I could. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't work with my hockey career, so I had to play football instead. But, uh, but listen, I'm happy to be here regardless. Yeah, the hands of Mario Lemieux. Not many people outside <laughs> of Mario Lemieux have the hands of Mario Lemieux. Humble brag. The uh, Vancouver Whitecaps better really like that Canadian championship trophy, the one that's in the picture beside me, because their hopes of making the MLS playoffs are getting as unrealistic as my hopes as being as tall as Chris Galis. Even Vanny Sartini admits the chances of playoffs are very low. The possibility to get a playoff is probably 1% at the moment. But still, because it's not 0%, it's our moral and professional duty to try to put away the frustration and to concentrate on, uh, on, uh, on what we have to do. Yeah, it's not going as well as it did last year. Hard to believe after last year. All right, thanks, Squire. Up next, California withering in the heat. Jordan Armstrong is here now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan. And Chris, of course, we're watching the latest developments out of Saskatchewan, recapping what we know so far. Sources tell Global News the mass stabbing suspect, Miles Sanderson, died shortly after he was arrested in a town southwest of the James Smith Cree Nation, where many of the attacks took place. It's believed he died from self-inflicted wounds, ending the manhunt underway since the weekend. And Sophie is not here in studio tonight because she is moderating a town hall featuring all of the Vancouver mayoral candidates, and we'll have highlights of that at 11. Chris? Still working. Even when always. She's not here, always. <laughs> all right, thanks very much, Jordan. Well, late summer heat feels pretty good on the B.C. coast, but down in California, the state is withering under a heat wave that's pushing its power grid to the brink. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the latest. Parched and cracked, California's landscape is locked under a dangerous heat dome. Bringing water, keep hydrated. After hitting an all-time September high of 53 degrees Celsius last week, Death Valley cooled off this week to 52 degrees. This is an area used to this kind of warmth. But in the cities where the mercury is soaring into the 40s, the need to cool off is bringing the power system to the brink. We're heading to the worst part of this heat wave, and the risk for outages is real, and it's immediate. The lights have so far managed to stay on, though amid requests to diminish use, buildings, many empty, are lit up like the night sky. Those last few days are likely to be a dress rehearsal for what's going to be a much more significantly stressed set of conditions here. 
The heat has left California a tinderbox, dry and arid land now primed to go up in flames. There's basically no moisture in the vegetation, so we're seeing the fire just having exponential fire growth. The mill fire has already consumed more than 1,600 hectares. Thousands have been forced from their homes, and at least two people have died. We feel for our community, it's heartbreaking for us when we hear these things. It's about 55% contained, and this fire season is entering what's historically the most intense time. The Fairview Fire, south of San Bernardino, is barely 5% contained and has already killed two people. And the combination of heat and fire is only exacerbated by a lack of water. Reservoirs being as low as they are means that you just can't run as much uh, water through the dams as you would like to. Lawmakers are proposing that California start to rank heat waves similar to hurricane categories, a potential life-saving move that could prepare the public for what's likely to remain a new climate reality. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Lot to wrestle with down there while well, summer kind of rolls on for us here. Beautiful weather and sunny conditions and, and still watching wildfires too, Christy. Absolutely, because we don't have any rain, a significant rain in the forecast as far as we can see for southern BC. And that does mean some great news for everyone that are enjoying uh, the summer-like weather. We'll see it through the weekend. We may see some cloud cover on Sunday. Make sure you tune in to find out a little bit more detail about the latter part of the weekend. No doubt. All right. Thanks very much, Christy. Thank you, Squire, and everybody for watching. Have a great night.